0: I'm Lindsay Ford, and you're listening to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm a David Rubenstein Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program here at Brookings, and this is day two of our five-day Global China Takeover of the Cafeteria podcast. We're talking to different Brookings scholars each day this week in conjunction with our Global China Project, which has just published a new series of papers looking at various aspects of how China is exercising its growing influence on the global stage. Yesterday, I talked to Tarun Chabar and Ryan Haas, who are co directing the project, along with Rush Doshi. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking to Richard Nephew, who's a senior non resident scholar here at Brookings and also a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia. Richard is a well-known expert on sanctions policy. He has literally written the book on the topic. It's called The Art of Sanctions. And he served as the principal deputy coordinator for sanctions policy at the Department of State during the Obama administration. So, Richard, welcome.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: We are going to talk today about your paper that you did for this project, which looks at sanctions policy as an emerging area of strategic competition between Washington and Beijing. And I thought the paper was really fascinating and particularly timely. What interested me is thinking about the fact that the U.S. has traditionally had sanctions policy as sort of a unique tool in our toolkit. And there's been a lot of discussions about how we deploy sanctions as a policy tool right now, not just toward Iran, but in the China context in particular, people have advocated for sanctions over issues like, say, territorial aggression in the South China Sea, human rights abuses in Xinjiang. So for me, I think looking at how China might seek to play more in this space in the future on its own is a really important topic to explore. So jumping right in, you talk in the paper, you say that China's general opposition to multilateral sanctions, unilateral sanctions that has been a pretty traditional stance for the Chinese government has relaxed in recent years. And so you think that in terms of where they're headed, sanctions policy could become a more competitive aspect of the U.S.-China relationship in the future. Can you talk a bit about what you see as some of the more significant evolutions we've seen in China's rhetoric and its approach to sanctions and where you think they might be headed in thinking about sanctions policy in the future?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, if we really dial our th- uh, thinking back uh, and, and consider, you know, Chinese policy ever since the revolution, you know, we can see various different epochs. And I think, you know, the initial years were defined by China trying to restructure the economy and trying to actually have a more modern economy. So at that time, you know, sanctions were not exactly something that you would want to do because, you know, ultimately they come down to denying access to China, you know, for the rest of the world. And I don't think that's something that they thought was in their interest. In fact, quite the opposite. They wanted to encourage business activity, and that was even you know when you had Chairman Mao, and you know throughout the you know 60s, 70s, and 80s, you really still saw this as being the predominant Chinese uh, approach to sanctions, and it matched the non-interventionist foreign policy approach that China had as well. Over the course of the last 15 years, that's really shifted, and it's shifted as China itself has started taking on much more of a global leadership role, as well as they've started to see that there are some advantages to leveraging the Chinese economy. So now we're seeing the Chinese being prepared to use sanctions and the threat of sanctions and isolation in a variety of contexts, whether dealing with South Korea and the acceptance of the THAAD system, the air defense system, the missile defense system that, that we installed there in the Philippines with South China Sea, as you suggested. Taiwan arms sales. You know, we're seeing them start to exert themselves in areas they consider to be foreign policy uh, priorities. We're also seeing them start to be uh, ready to use sanctions affirmatively, not just in retaliation. You know, in the past, they'd be prepared to use uh, the threat of sanctions or use of sanctions to actually cut off, uh, you know, business conduct in response to something that had been done to China. Now they're looking at it in a much more uh, affirmative way. How can we use our economic policy and economic access as a tool? How do we deny or threaten to deny access to China? And will that actually encourage foreign policy changes? And this is all being reflected both in the official and in the academic sphere, which is really suggestive that they're thinking through the contours of a much more evolved and settled policy.
0: You mentioned, some of the things that we've seen China do, you know, vis-a-vis maybe private companies and their stance toward Taiwan in the South Korea case, um, Lotte and retaliation for um, the THAAD deployment. I thought that this was interesting in your paper, was that you sort of pointed out um, maybe a more expansive definition of sanctions, right? That things like these sort of... Um, targeted boycotts that we saw China encouraging could actually be a form of sanctions policy and one that China could potentially use quite effectively.
1: Yeah. And and this is really a, a function of what are China's advantages. You know, when they actually sit back to think, what do we have in terms of leverage? What do we have in terms of of something that's deniable to other folks? I think what they see is they've got the Chinese market uh, first and foremost. They've got a market that is emerging, that is evolving, that is becoming a much more important source of uh, income for international companies. And they say, okay, we'll deny access to that. If you would like to invest in China, we won't let you, and we won't let you have that kind of market access. I think we're seeing them start to have the same approach with regard to the Chinese middle class. If you are going to do things we don't like, then we're not going to allow our tourists to come to your country with all the money that they potentially can spend. So I think what this really speaks to is a uh, Chinese approach in which they have identified what are their advantages, what are their strengths, what are things that other people want access to and therefore can be denied. And in this regard, they're not really approaching things differently than the United States would do. You know, when you think about how U.S. sanctions policy has evolved over time, we also have targeted things that people want and, and access they want to the U.S. economy, such as access to the U.S. financial system. And by denying that, uh, we seek to persuade uh, countries, companies, entities that they ought not engage in uh, conduct that we don't like. And so I think really where the Chinese are um, at this point is, is a process of cataloging. Uh, what are their strengths? What are their opportunities? And then selecting using them where they think there are vulnerabilities to their sanctions target. Again, not unlike the United States.
0: Yeah, And so you talk about this idea that China thus far has been basically, you know, reactive, responding to how we might use sanctions policy affirmatively. But now they are doing this process of cataloging their own strengths and thinking right. about how those could be used in an affirmative manner. Um, and those strengths will look different where the U.S. um, has used its financial markets and access to U.S. financial markets as a strength, China may use its own domestic markets and and access to the Chinese middle class, like you just said. So recognizing that China may be looking to use um, sanctions policy in a different way than us, it will bring different economic advantages to the table than the ones that the U.S. has. What kinds of problems and challenges does that present for policymakers
1: well you know i think there are several uh, challenges that are created i mean i think first is that you know we'll actually have to deal with the actual consequences of any chinese action you know again to the extent that they're prepared to use sanctions pressure and pre- sanctions tools against the united states and our companies individuals and entities that are important uh, they're going to be doing damage you know if they were to deny access to general motors to all of china we're going to have to deal with the consequences potentially General Motors, both in terms of its actual economic performance as well as its com- uh, you know level of competition with the rest of the world. Those are effects that we're going to have to deal with. And when you consider China as a market, that that potentially could be very very serious. You know, we also are going to have to deal with the political effects that come from that. And, and I think this is a uh, not yet fully realized issue, but at the point in which uh, you know China is able to threaten thousands of jobs in the United States, as we're already starting to see with the tariff, uh, you know, tit for tat uh, response that we've had since uh, Trump became president. Um, you know, I think we'll start to see a need for policymakers to have to deal with angry constituents. And those constituents can be everyone from soybean farmers all the way up to the heads of, of uh, global corporations. And those kinds of political effects are going to shape our decision making. They're going to shape our option set. They're going to shape how members of Congress and members of the executive branch consider uh, sanctions tools, which I think is is a pretty important thing to keep in mind because to the extent that China is able to shape our decision set by taking certain uh, U.S. interests and putting uh, direct pressure on them, we'll have to start considering whether or not we want to apply sanctions pressure on China in, in certain areas, whether it's human rights or whether or not it's with regard to Taiwan or North Korea, or whether we don't want to do that uh, because we do have uh, our own interests at stake here, which I, I don't think we've fully internalized how that will affect U.S. policy and how it will affect our desire to have to uh, you know, achieve a maximalist foreign policy, instead engage in trade-offs. And I think the, the, the last thing that uh, will be a fairly major challenge for us is the effects on partners. You know, one of the things that uh, I point out in the paper is that China doesn't just have to put pressure on the United States directly to put pressure on the United States. That we also have got allies and partners that are potentially more exposed to China even than us. Again, look at South Korea and Thad. And uh, to the extent that the Chinese are able to damage their economy or damage their strategic interests, those are interests in the United States as well, and they're going to have an effect on what we have to do potentially uh, in terms of defense, in terms of economic security, and certainly in. terms terms of political relationships. So a lot of challenges that are going to have both primary and direct effects on on the U.S., our economy, and our political decision makers.
0: Yeah, this is a great point that I thought you raised in the paper, which is it's not simply how China might seek to um, use its sanctions against the United States directly, but that in many instances, Um, it might be an indirect play. And that might actually be more difficult for the U.S. to deal with because some of our closest allies and partners are actually far more economically vulnerable um, and exposed to China's ability to exert economic coercion. We've seen this in various cases. And, you know, I raised Korea and Lotte, but there have been others. Um, And I think you mentioned in the paper that in some cases where the U.S. might be perhaps more resilient, essentially, to this pressure because of the size of our economy, that smaller uh, smaller countries don't have the same ability to offset that pressure. So for the U.S., as we think about wanting allies and partners to stay aligned with us on issues that are in our interest and in support of our values, what do U.S. policymakers actually do? What are the tools that you can use to help some of these smaller countries who might be exposed to Chinese economic coercion be able to actually offset that challenge?
1: Yeah, this is a really difficult problem. And it's especially difficult because our uh, solution set uh, for this particular set of challenges, is different than what China can bring to the table, and that's on the basis of our, you know, market economy and our inability to potentially match, you know, dollar for dollar the sort of uh, influence that China is going to be able to bring to bear. You know, we're not going to be going to Italy anytime soon with a massive aid package uh, or, or certainly a, a help for their industrial, uh, uh, you know, policy. The same way that uh, China is able to, for instance, uh, try and leverage the Belt and Road Initiative. And and to the extent that it's actually being uh, pretty successful in Europe, I think you can see uh, some of the risks and, and questions that are, are generated from there. I do think there are things that we can do. I, I think you know, first of all, uh, especially for our most vulnerable uh, partners uh, who are at risk from a security standpoint, we, we can reinforce them, you know, in a direct physical sort of way um, against any kind of uh, you know political and economic coercion that might be brought to bear. And this this is probably the most important in Japan and South Korea to make sure at a minimum they don't feel insecurity at a physical level, but also reinforce them on a political level and to underscore that, you know, we are uh, partners, we're allies, and uh, that set of interests won't change. And I think, frankly, this is one area where the Trump administration has done some damage to the United States because in South Korea and Japan now, it's hard to make that case that it's worth sticking with the U.S. even if there is a short-term problem problem. problem that might be created with China. But there are opportunities to rebuild those relationships and reinforce them going into the future. And that would give some confidence and some sense of stability uh, for those partners. I think we can also keep working with partners on uh, avoiding excessive interdependence uh, with China. And I think you, know, you see a little bit about this uh, with respect to Huawei. You see it with the debates over 5G and other such things. But I think you know there are ways in which we can talk and, and strategize and cooperate with partners to identify areas in which interdependence and trade and business activities are perfectly fine and places where it's more dangerous. And if we're thoughtful and if we're uh, considerate about identifying and redlining those areas, I think we'll be able to uh, assure our partners that we're not just seeking domestic U.S. economic advantage here, but rather looking after their baseline uh, security and political uh, independence you know, vis-a-vis uh, China. I also think that you know there's some messaging that needs to be done uh, to China itself and I think here it's worth us having a serious conversation both internally and then eventually with partners about whether or not we want to expand our uh, security assurances to include the economic interests of our allies in addition to their physical one. Now, this is challenging, especially because, you know, we are economic competitors with countries like Japan and South Korea. But I think again within the confines of a stable political relationship we'll be able to convince they first and then eventually the chinese that notwithstanding any economic competition that might exist with our partners and allies ultimately if china is going to threaten their stability and threaten their threaten their economic security as a result of uh, any kind of sanctions fight that we end up having with the Chinese, that uh, the Chinese will be chastened by that to some extent, or at least we'll have to bear in mind that there are risks if they take too aggressive a case. So I think reassurance is the bottom line. I think some messaging uh, will also need to be engaged in. But I think more than anything, we need to uh, try and rebuild the the relationships such that they have more of a, a feeling of trust when we say we have your interests at stake here.
0: This is a really interesting idea, you know, thinking about sort of alliance commitments, not only in the security context, but does does that extend as well to the economic context if, um, you know, if economic coercion is, is being applied in a way that would impact our security interest. And um, it's intriguing to me because as a security person, um, you know, my instinct and probably of a lot of national security people would be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I wonder... Would the business community see it the same way, right? Um, Would making those kind of reassurances for some folks in the business lane um, potentially impact their bottom line because there are competitive relationships there um, and, and lead folks in the business community to be less supportive of that kind of idea? What do you think?
1: No, I think that's an issue. And as as I said, I mean, I think when, when you start thinking outside of physical security issues and start thinking about economic security issues, I, I think you can hear people in the business sector, you know, start to get a little nervous about what what does that mean? How far would, would an administration go? But look, if we really think about it, though... Um, our interest in our partners does extend to their economic stability because they're economic partners, because they're markets. You know, when you think about Europe, for instance, it's not just NATO. It's the fact that they're one of our largest trading partners, the fact that we have investments uh, there and they have investments here. So to some extent, we're already invested in the economic security of Europe, the economic security of Japan and South Korea. And I think this is where you just need to have a fairly healthy understanding of competition's one thing. And fighting over individual margins and having competition over your company versus my company, getting a contract, those are all par-for-the-course aspects of business uh, competitiveness. But our lines need to be, while we're all prepared to rock the boat a little bit, we're not going to tip it over. And the concern that we'd be registering back with the Chinese is, we are not going to allow you to tip the boat over as well. And so if you want to use your tools of economic coercion uh, in order to leverage political decision-making, that's a potential line uh, that is dangerous to us and something that we'll take an interest in. If a Chinese company wants to compete with a South Korean American Canadian company over who can deliver the best widget for a car, that's a different uh, uh, you know type of, of activity. And so I, I think there are ways, um, as we've demonstrated for the last 70 years at the WTO and other uh, trade uh, you know formats, in which we can have a baseline level of acceptable economic competitiveness but ensure that the overall situation for our partners is going to remain stable and and assured. And I think it's that kind of uh, agreement that will help protect the common space uh, and that will do so in a, a tight, cooperative, and engaged relationship. That, to me, is the level of assurance that is both acceptable from a business context and desirable from a security context.
0: It's a great point. No, you know, I think recently as, as folks are wrestling with this idea of, quote, strategic competition with China and what that looks like, how you reconcile the, um, you know, U.S. economic interests, U.S. security interests, where they intersect, where they may uh, be different. And folks in the economic world and the security world may think about U.S. interests in different ways um, has been something really challenging for experts to wrestle with lately, and there's been a lot of discussion in particular about this idea of um, weaponized interdependence, mm-hmm. wh- which which essentially is saying that where perhaps in the past, um, folks who really supported uh, liberal – Uh, internationalism believed that this idea of greater institutionalization and bringing China into sort of all of the global institutions and economic networks would create a degree of interdependence that would um, help us avoid conflict, create incentives against coercion uh, and unhealthy forms of competition, that maybe that's not true. Um, And that maybe because of the way that um, international networks develop, that China uh, actually is able to use that interdependence for coercive purposes. And so that's led to a pretty robust debate here in the United States about what folks are calling the idea of, quote, decoupling. And this has been something that's been talked about a lot lately. Some people talk about that in a very broad sense of simply just trying to decouple the U.S. and um, Chinese economies to a much greater degree in in order to avoid Weaponized interdependence, some people talk about it perhaps in a more narrow sense, specifically associated with maybe key technologies or things like this. What do you think about this debate? Um, What makes sense in terms of um, thinking about how to avoid vulnerabilities in the U.S. economy to Chinese coercion?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's an important debate to be had, in part because of this, you know, sense of uh, sanctions competition, if nothing else, that we're starting to sense from the Chinese. I mean, I I think, you know, first of all, there is a little bit of an irony here about being overly— Uh, you know, pearl clutching about weaponized interdependence because, I mean, you can make a good argument the United States did it first uh, in terms of our leveraging the U.S. financial system for foreign policy uh, gain. The the difference, of course, is that when we do it, it's for truth and justice. And when the Chinese do it, it's for nefarious ends, right? So, I mean, I think ultimately um, how you look at the use of interdependence and business relationships for foreign policy aims really depends on on kind of how you enter the conversation on what side uh, you said. I think it's, uh, to me, intuitively obvious that the Chinese would be able to take advantage of an interdependent relationship for foreign policy interests. And um, if we didn't think they were going to do that, it's because we always assumed that we would be on top in all circumstances, which I think is a fairly short-sighted sort of of view. Um, You know, to some extent, it goes back to that, you know, old uh, saying about, you know, if you owe the the bank a million dollars, you've got some, uh, you know, leverage over the bank just as much as it does over you. I do think that there is something to the idea about having more robust protections for intellectual property, for defending our technological edge, for reinforcing our domestic manufacturing sectors. So there is a lot that we both can and should do to ensure that this interdependence with China doesn't become uh, you know, uh, deleterious to the U.S. overall economic and security interests. I think that reforming CFIUS as an institution was a good idea. It is a good idea and that we need to be much more careful about how we uh, look at Chinese investment in the United States. How we look at supply chains, and, and really be careful about becoming uh, so dependent that uh, China becomes a single source of uh, failure for the U.S. In the same way, you wouldn't want them—you uh, know—any country really to be the same. You know, for for a variety of reasons, just because of, of risks of economic problems or or some sort of disruption. But I do think that trying to decouple from China just for the sake of doing so is a bad idea. I don't think there's any reason why we can't trade with China, invest in China, and receive investments in turn. And I think actually some degree of interdependence is useful, and especially if we're entering a period of hegemonic competition. A world in which we don't need each other may be an especially uh, violent place. So I think ultimately what it comes down to is nuance. It it comes down to being careful about what sectors we open up, what uh, uh, economic activities we're prepared to allow Chinese uh, companies to operate in, which ones we're not, uh, being much more thoughtful about uh, how we look at investments, how we study them for their national security impact, for companies uh, not becoming uh, single source dependent on China, and for ensuring that on the diplomatic front, we've got a real conversation going uh, about what are acceptable forms of economic competition, the kinds of intellectual property protections we would expect, and those sorts of things. And as long as we're doing this in a fairly straightforward way, I see no reason why we can't have some degree of interdependence, but at the same time protect those interests.
0: And you say in the paper that, you know, U.S. policymakers need to think much more seriously about some of these tools and the things that they need to do if we're walking into an era in which we are no longer the only one in the sanctions game. And one thing I thought was interesting in what you said is, yes, there are things we perhaps need to be thinking about. Um, Are there opportunities to shape China's nascent sanctions policies? Uh, But also, maybe there aren't, Uh, in which case we need to be developing policies uh, to protect ourselves against that possibility. But you flag in particular in one section that one thing the U.S. has to think about is some of the vulnerabilities we have that have to do with our own domestic economic policies and thinking about how that makes us vulnerable to China in some cases. And I thought this was a really interesting argument that some of the things you said the U.S. needs to be doing to get more serious about protecting itself in a world where China may be able to leverage sanctions policy isn't simply about what we do vis-a-vis China. It's actually what we need to do domestically to get our own house in order. So can you tell me a little bit about what you see as vulnerabilities in the U.S. economy that U.S. policymakers need to be more serious about addressing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this to me is a fundamental part of any kind of, uh, you know, economic security argument. It's not just about what other people can do to you, but what you allow them to do to you uh, if you are leaving yourself open. And look, you know, it's 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 nothing that I don't think is, isn't being discussed on a daily basis, but we've got a problem with income inequality in the United States. Um, it creates a situation in which disruptions to trade patterns that potentially affect, you know, some of our big uh, corporates or affect our farming sector and so forth can have a major impact on millions of Americans. And again, we're already seeing this to some degree with what's happening with response to the tariffs. The damage that's being done to, uh, you know, average folks and certainly Will be done to average folks uh, if the tariff wars continue much longer um, are in part a function of income inequality. If there was more resilience at a family level, we wouldn't have the same kind of political vulnerability that we have, uh, you know, potentially now. And you can scale it up to a corporate level as well. The IMF has noted the degree to which uh, our corporate sector is overleveraged and the degree to which the U.S. government is over-leveraged, to the extent that that kind of debt uh, dependence. Uh, In which China is a prominent figure, you know, creates some exposure to Chinese decision making. Well, that that's because we let them in. Um, If we weren't so heavily debt dependent. Uh, if we weren't so heavily debt dependent on China, we would not have some of those uh, same vulnerabilities. So I think, you know, frankly, we we should be trying to sort out these problems for our own sake. You know, I think that it would improve the U.S. economy and its resilience more generally. But I think that if you were to address these problems, then they would not be vulnerabilities that China uh, would be able to exploit. And it's less of an issue of closing the door on China in these areas, and more simply reducing the degree of our exposure. It's also worth noting in this context, of course, that the Chinese also have vulnerabilities to the United States, too. That 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 saying I was just you know, talking about, about if you owe the bank a million dollars, you know, you've know you got some leverage. Well, the same thing applies here with respect to the Chinese. And I think um, the degree to which we're having an active conversation with China about our vulnerabilities and theirs might actually also lead us away from a path of competition and one in which we can negotiate and engage more seriously in an adult and sober conversation about what we want to see come as a result of U.S. policy decisions and Chinese.
0: Great. Richard, thanks. This has been a fascinating conversation. I would encourage everyone to go online to the Brookings website where you can see all of the Global China Papers and check out Richard's full paper on U.S. and China sanctions policy. A lot of really interesting lessons in there. I really appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: And this has been the Brookings Cafeteria. I hope you will all join us tomorrow for day three of our Global China Takeover of the Cafeteria Podcast. Thanks so much.
2: The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Riberedo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abelagin provide design and web support. Our intern this fall is Eowyn Fain. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network